Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you here from Macquarie University. And we're here today speaking with Grant Farad, who teaches at Cornell University. I think it's fair to say he's one of our leading philosophers of sport. Uh, His recent books include Martin Heidegger, Save My Life, and In Motion at Rest, The Event of the Athletic Body. But we're here today to talk about his most recent work, the Burden of Overrepresentation, Race, Sport, and Philosophy from Temple University Press. Thanks for joining us here today, Grant. Thanks for having me, Mr. Rathbone. I was hoping that we could start off by having you talk a little bit about how you became a sports philosopher and how you came to this particular project. I'm, I'm not sure I'm a sports philosopher, so let me try and explain what it is I imagine myself to be doing or understand myself to be doing. Um, I've written a fair amount about sport. My, you know, the first um, edited collection I did, I think, is 96. And I did this, uh, it's called Rethinking C.L.R. James. And my, I both edited and contributed an essay. And my essay in there is about James as a political figure who comes to understand politics through sport. Um, James says famously, cricket had plunged me into politics long before I was aware of it. When I did turn to politics, I did not have too much to learn. So I spent, you know, much of my career in some ways thinking about sport, um, sometimes more obviously and in a more sustained fashion. But somewhere, I think, in the last 15 years, um, especially after I published What's My Name, which you know has an extensive chapter on James, and the, the title of that book, What's My Name, derives from Muhammad Ali's, um, you know, injunction. And he says, you know, what's my name? What's my name? The sort of intonation he... Um, you know, he's fighting only the octopus Terrell, and Terrell won't call him Muhammad Ali. He keeps calling him Cassius Clay, and Ali's not happy with us. So um, that book was published in 2003, and I go on to publish, you know, a pamphlet on um, Yao Ming and race and, and globalization in the NBA, I think that's something like 2006 or 2007, and then 2007, I'm sure I, I published a book about being a Liverpool fan called Long Distance Love. And I think at this moment, a certain barrier or limit presents itself to me. That is, I experience a certain frustration. Frustration may be too strong a word, but I can't imagine a better one right now where I realized that I don't want to write about sport in the way that I have. And 
somewhere around that time I'm reading as I continue to do um, a whole lot of Derrida and Heidegger and you know folks like Badiou and Agamben and so on and um, there's a lot of stuff in the event I mean go in the philosophical air about the event and around this time Ron Artest who plays for the Indiana Pacers and who um, is the subject of the first chapter of the burden of overrepresentation goes up into the stands in an NBA game in Indiana. Um, people throw beer on him. He gets suspended for a historic number of games and he's fined a historic number, <laughs> amount of money. And that's the moment when things slowly start to come together, or at least they dawn on me, which is that I can no longer write or think sport in the way that I have. You know, as I said, I've reached a certain kind of limit. and So I imagine that I'm going to have to try and produce a new language for how it is I do sport or how it is I think about sport. And that's really what I am trying to do. That's what the burden of overrepresentation is all about. It's um, the meat in the sandwich would be my description. I... Um, I've written three books on sport and the event. Um, the first one, as you mentioned, is um, you know at in motion at rest, which came out in 2013, and then the burden of overrepresentation came out this year. And next year, there's a, a new book from Duke University Press called Entre Nous Between the World Cup and Me. And all three of these works turn in one way or another on the event, and so. What I have tried to do is create a language that can bear the burden of thinking sport philosophically. And that burden is created for me through something like a commitment um, to, shall we say, philosophy. Because I don't think we can fully grapple with sport unless we treat it philosophically. Now that's, you know, a f that may be a somewhat hubristic claim, but as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking and writing about sport, that's the place I've arrived at. Um, well, I'm, I'm not a philosopher by training, though I'm not sure who he is, but um, I have found philosophy, which is to say a certain number of thinkers, incredibly helpful to assist me to create this language that can bear the weight of thinking sport and enabling us to understand what I think is at stake in sport and also because I think sport and perhaps only sport and politics instantiate the event with such regularity. I think we all watch sport in anticipation of the event, which is to say, you know, you look for that last-minute miracle, what Americans call a Hail Mary. You, When your side is down, you think, oh, we can come back, we can come back. And then sometimes it happens, of course, and this feeds either your pathology or it reinforces your notion of the event, you know. Nobody sees 1917 coming, right? It just, it's there. In retrospect, in its supplementarity, we can understand it's a massive break in history. Uh, it's a rupture. And this is what I think sport does. Um, 
every times. Go ahead, sir. I think you're. No, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say I, I think your your chapter on uh, Francois Pinard and um, uh, Nelson Mandela make this view of the event very clear because you you state um, that it's it's Pinard's rejection or negation rather um, of of Mandela that turns this particular moment into an event. So maybe you can tease apart that particular moment for our listeners and illustrate how that becomes an event. That, that's true. And in, in many ways, um, our test and the Mandela and Pinar chapter, um, I think those are the signal, um, you know, that, that constitutes the chapter. But it's also what I'm, within about five or six years, I'm thinking about both those things together. But let me talk about the, um, the Mandela chapter and the Pinar chapter. Um, I, I was invited in 2010 to go back to Duke University where I had previously taught. And they were doing this um, seminar on the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, the Football World Cup. And they were doing it something like four months before the, um, the World Cup began. And I was invited to, um, to speak and uh, they wanted me to talk about football, and I just I couldn't do it. I thought, no, you know, I've just I just published this um, this book on you know being a Liverpool fan, and and it, and it just seemed so sort of predictable, and it it it's the thing I would have been expected to do. And then, um, you know, about fifteen years earlier, when South Africa is first admitted or readmitted. <laughs> And I prefer admitted, but there are people who would imagine it as a kind of readmittance, which is to say they were they transgressed and now they're allowed back. I think post-apartheid South Africa should be disarticulated from its apartheid predecessor. But uh, in any case, I'm invited to give this talk, and you know, I recall this moment when it's a small moment is. Um, you rightly point out, and it should just be pro forma because South Africa, under somewhat dubious circumstances, has won the 2010 and the 1995 Rugby World Cup. And you know, I'm I remain unconvinced that they beat France because they have penalty, they have penalties and disallowed tries, and everything feels just a little shady. But in any case, um, so they beat against all odds, you know, a wonderful, perhaps the greatest all-black team of all time, perhaps the greatest rugby team of all time. Um, you know, Jonah Lomo, Sean Fitzpatrick, and I mean, just Glenn Osborne, just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful team. And Mandela, you know, as the, the host um, president, or to say the host of the the presidential host of the the host nation. Sorry, I phrased that awkwardly. Um, you know, does the pro forma stuff? He hands he hands Francois Pina the Africana, um, the Web Alice Trophy, and he says, "Thank you, Francois." And Pina, without missing a rhetorical beat, says, "No, thank you, Mr. President." And in in that moment, everything turns. Because here you have what Mandela really wants is a moment of national reconciliation. He wants things to come back together. 
it's a sort of kumbaya moment, right? The new democratic South Africa celebrating the Rugby World Cup and the black iconic leader meeting, you know, or exchanging platitudes with the um, Africana captain. And the Africana rugby captain is, of course, the very instantiation of, you know, white male Africana dominance. And it's that moment of negation. It's when Pinar says, no, thank you, Mr. President. And I'm never quite sure where the emphasis falls. I know it's on one of the second person um, pronouns, second person singular, that is. And when Mandela is refused, I recognize that what Pinar has done is that he's created an event, but that event is lost. And for me, that's what's interesting about, you know, how I try to do my work. It's not that we forget about the event, though that's entirely possible and does happen. We can't really forget, say, again, 1917 or South Africa, 1976, or, you know, I'm sure they are, or the 4th of July or, or something like that. Um, but what really um, sort of piques my interest consistently are those moments that are not recognized as an event and they have to be almost recovered. They have to be put back together so as to understand everything that accretes to that moment. And so what I really enjoy doing is um, sort of recognizing that moment, of course, almost always in retrospect, and then trying to make a philosophical case, as it were, for why this constitutes an event, which is in itself important. But what is equally significant is the way in which through thinking the event it's possible to understand how the event comes to be you know the conditions that have made this event possible so what leads up to this what's ignored what's forgotten what's overlooked those are the things that i try to give some philosophical visibility and, if possible, some philosophical heft to. And the Mandela moment is is wonderful because, you know, everybody's so euphoric. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we won the Rugby World Cup and Pinar and Mandela. And nobody talks about that moment of abnegation. Yeah, I I, um, I found that chapter as a I'm, – I'm an historian by training, so I found that chapter – uh, particularly interesting. I think you do a great job of pointing out the the love and the suffering that both Pinar and Mandela um, have to bring to that moment in order for it to become an event. How it becomes this moment of both of of reconciliation as we remember it now, but at the at the moment itself, I think you're you're right. Totally a, a moment of conciliation. One of the things that was most interesting for me, though, is that events have a kind of bi-directionality. For me, that idea was very uh, interesting. I was wondering if you could unpack a little bit what that was and why that's so essential to um, thinking about something as as, as an event uh, in particular. Well, you know, Kierkegaard says somewhere, the decision changes everything. And that's how I think of the event um, in this case. And you're, you're right to highlight the term reconciliation, because that's precisely what I'm arguing against. I 
um, the burden of representation had an earlier, um, shall we say, name or conceptualization, and that conceptualization was conciliation. And I think I would have, you know, um, as a title, it, it might have been strange, because I don't think we distinguish between conciling and reconciling. I think we understand both of them to bring opposing parties together, where there was enmity and antagonism. There's now a sort of workable solution. There's harmony. There's, you know, um, through mediation, a kind of compromise or negotiation has been achieved. And what I try to extract, if that's the right word, or excavate or make philosophically visible in all three of the chapters of The Burden of Overrepresentation is this sense that, you know, one, we're not prepared for the event, and two, when it happens, we don't have a language for it. But in this book, in The Burden of Overrepresentation, I am committed to thinking the event through conciliation, which is to say conciliation can only be thought through a kind of refusal of of reconciliation. It is not to bring things together, but conciliation, I argue in the burden of over-representation, is the first sort of ethical moment in politics because it refuses any neat suture, any coming together, any kind of reconciliation. And I think what I try to do, especially in the Mandela and the Pinot chapter, is posit Mandela has been on the wrong side of history. Uh, there are other reasons, and I've made this case in other contexts for why I disagree with Mandela, but yeah, it's striking that it's the white Africana who comes from a conservative, you know, lower middle class background who gets it who gets that you can't have reconciliation here. You must have something else. You must have a moment of conflict. You must have a political refusal. And it's, it's, it's Pinar who offers that. It's not Mandela. And that's what's striking to me. This is what the event does. It completely upends and overturns political expectation. Things are not what they seem to be, as it were. And so that's why I attach such impo- such importance to the notion of conciliation. And it's a thread that, you know, runs through all three chapters of this book. But the refusal to bring things together neatly, the rejection of suturing, and instead an insistence upon this moment, the first moment of conflict, the first moment of coming into contact with something that resists. And Often and quite, I would have to say, um, <laughs> joyfully, it's Pinar who gives me that, you know. So, I know there's a terrible 80s song that says, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many spaces, <laughs> you know. But I like the idea. I know the song. Yeah, I like the idea of, sort of looking for or rather being confronted by something that comes from an unexpected source. You know, the event originates if that is such a term. It begins somewhere other than where you think it um, it will, and it lodges itself within some figure other than the expected um, character or narrative. It's somewhere else. And, you know, Pinar, you know, strikes me as an unlikely catalyst for the event. But 
all the more interesting, all the more philosophically revealing and rich. I, 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 um, that makes me think about the chapter on Jackie Robinson, because it's a bit of a, a, a um, what's the word I want to use? Uh, it, it flips the script in some ways of, of what we've come to understand about Jackie Robinson in some meaningful ways. And, and, um, for me, that, that chapter was great at, at explaining exactly how you thought about, um, over-representation as a concept. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Jackie Robinson and overrepresentation. Well, you know, um, I have when I was finishing up um, the burden of overrepresentation and talking with my editor and going through copy edits and and that kind of thing. I was on, um, you know, for some reason I I knew that I had um, used this concept before, and it, you know, something that I was in grad school. One of you know one of my best friends, um, David Allison, is lives in Sydney. Um, you know, so I, I hope he gets to hear this. I'm not sure he wants to, but um, I had been this concept that that sort of come to me, if that's the right phrase, and or the right explanation of how things came to be. And I'd, I'd written this very small essay in a journal called Social Text, and it was about you know, they, they didn't name it, but the concept I'm working with there is the burden of overrepresentation. And then I publish what's my name, and I, and there it is again. And so, you know, um, I think it's uh, it's Socrates or Plato. Certainly, Heidegger says it in Vasai's Denken, but they say, "You only we, all of us, we only have one idea. All we do is keep repeating it." We don't know that, but we only have one idea. And initially, I think I was kind of offended by this because, you know, I'm, I'm I, I think I'm like most um, folks in this profession. I imagine that I have more than one thing. In fact, I imagine I have quite a few things to say. To have that reduced um, and crucible if there is such a verb to one, I find slightly disconcerting. But in any case, this concept was lodged in me, as it were, and. You know, in my first articulation, well, this is, must be 94 and then 2003, what I offer is, a, you know, a schematic outline, which is to say the exceptional individual um, from a marginalized community has to bear a burden that is excessive and undue, if you will, in relation to the individual, because the individual is always metonymic. The individual always stands as the exceptional figure. So the individual um, who figures as the burden of overrepresentation, Jackie Robinson, um, even Barack Obama, if you will, um, Althea Gibson, um, Serena Williams, I think, bucks the trend in a very interesting way. But you're not allowed to transgress. You know, so a figure like Ali um, can stand as a burden, as a figure for the burden of representation, but more likely it's a figure such as Jackie Robinson, and we always understand Robinson to have been, if not quiescent, if not always sort of accommodating, then certainly the kind of guy who wasn't going to rock the boat. And, and, you know, there's some grounds for that. Jackie Robinson was, after all, a Rockefeller Republican, right? When Rockefeller's going up against Kennedy, um, he has to meet with both of them, and he meets with 
um, with Kennedy, and he asks him, you know, in, in what language I'm now roughly transcribing about the Negro problem. And Kennedy in his thick, um, you know, um, Boston drawl says, you know, um, Mr. Robinson, there aren't many Negroes in my state, so I don't really know anything about them. Robinson walks out and he says to a friend of his, he says, you know, um, if you want to be president of America, then you better find out about this. And so he talks to Tricky Dicky Nixon. And Nixon, you know, who grew up in Yobalanda, California, um, you know, goes to Whittier College, Duke Law School. So, you know, a fairly sort of circumscribed, closed world. He has some ideas about, you know, what it means um, to think about race relations in, in the U.S. And Robinson, you know, votes for Nixon. And, and those that's his that's his litmus test, right? That's that's the currency of the realm that matters to Robinson. So, you know, there are always exceptional individuals within marginalized communities, and the burden they have to bear is disproportionate. And so, having said that, what I find remarkable, again, a very small moment that I get from reading Roger Kahn's The Boys of Summer, a moment when Jackie Robinson is playing um He's playing catch with his best friend on the team. Um, Pee Wee Reese was also the Dodgers captain. You know, they're in New Orleans and once they're in Florida. But this event, I think, takes place in, in Pelican Park, in um, or Pelican Field, I think, in, um, in New Orleans. And Robinson's just playing catch. And because this is the South and they're bond, the Dodgers are barnstorming, and, you know, baseball's just been integrated. You know, the Negro section is insufficient to accommodate, um, you know, all the potential black patrons. And, you know, the police reluctantly open the white section, some part of the white section to accommodate these people. And the Negroes cheer, you know. And Robinson says this, now imagine we suddenly this most un-Robinson thing. He says, stupid bastards, don't cheer, stupid bastards, you got it coming. And it's a wonderful moment because it's so out of public character, as it were, with what we understand Jackie Robinson to be, you know, the exemplary Negro, the guy who doesn't confound and Robinson says, you know, like, don't cheer, you stupid bastards. You got it coming. These are your rights. And so for Robinson, this is offensive. But it's also, for me, incredibly revealing because it's so disjunctive, discontinuous with how Jackie Robinson is understood as a figure. And so the man who bears the burden of overrepresentation in such an exemplary fashion reveals himself through what I take to be an event. Yeah, I, I, I was just fascinated with this particular uh, case. Uh, I was thinking about how you were thinking about the, the, this curse of service and, and the, the, this framing of Robinson, that he must have really... Um, suffered and understood this, this, what Ricketts had asked him to do. And then this moment, this moment of almost Fanonian, um, you know, breaking of that. Uh, but interestingly targeted at people we wouldn't have expected, like he suffers all this 
misfortune uh, the white, white America is, you know, the one punishing him. And then the, the bastards, who is he talking about? I think you, I think you un, unpack that idea of how many different audiences maybe that bastards has in, in fascinating ways. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I would not use audiences. I think you're polite. I think they're targets, you know, and I think it's, I think it's scattershot and universal. I think he's saying stupid bastards about African-Americans or Negroes as the term would have been in that moment. He's really mad at them for cheering because he's like, it's your right. Don't do this. It's your right, you know, because you demean yourself. And Robinson is a man of intense dignity, just at that kind of level, ontologically speaking. But he's also, you know, riled up by by the police because this kind of concession it's clearly something they don't want to make. But he's also, Robinson, you know, he takes the promise of American democracy really, really seriously in that moment. He's like, no, the police should not be allowed to demean you in such a way that you cheer for something which is rightfully yours. And at the core, it's a legal discourse. You know, Robinson saying, this is your right. And if you treat it as though it were an exception, then you become complicit in the system. And even though I think there are many targets, including Branch Rickey, including the Dodgers Brass, right? These people who make so much money off him barnstorming. Jackie Robinson never made forty more than $40,000 in a season. That sounds paltry now. And it wasn't a bad salary then, but the Dodgers more than made that, you know, on a couple of um, weeks of barnstorming in the South. So Robinson was their cash cow. And Robinson's mad at them. But his main target, it's it's self-reflexive. But the question Robinson doesn't raise, or certainly not in front of Roger Kahn or Pee Wee Reese, is his own complicity in the system, right? I'm the guy they come in to watch. I'm the cash cow. You know, I'm not innocent here. And it's all those different layers and there was a moral element kind of underpinning a moral question i should say underpinning this whole chapter of of representation and who over representation and who who bears responsible responsibility for that who 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 makes the um immoral ask i'm i'm doing a terrible job of paraphrasing your uh, much more poetic language there um but it was interesting for me to see these characters, all of all of um, whether it's Branch Rickey or, or even Robinson himself, all these people we hold up as sports heroes. They they um, you know, they broke the color barrier in baseball, but actually maybe there was the, the, the breaking of the color barrier um, also re- relied on on a certain kind of moral um, on, a, on a certain kind of moral violation itself to even ask Robinson to do that, to agree to be this symbol to I, mean, I think the the line the, the line that um Roger Khan uses is Ricky asks Robinson to encase his natural volatility in lead. That's the phrase. And it's a remarkable insight into what Robinson is asked to do. And so that is presumed to be a truth. But what is never really thought about, and I mean thinking in a Heideggerian sense, you know, where it is what we do, um, 
we never think about Robinson in that way. Or if we do, we gloss it and we say he did this or he did that. And I try to, as you, you know, historian that you are, I mean, recognize I trace Robinson to, um, you know, um, as to his roots, as it were, in the U.S. Army, where he refuses to go to the back of the bus. Right. So we have. Um, we have all these figures in our head in 1955 and, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott and, and so on. But I'm saying Jackie Robinson did that. So there's actually a reason why Ricky asks him to encase his natural volatility in lead because he knows Robinson is an exceptional man. And we know why Robinson was chosen, right? He was... Um, not quite college graduated, but certainly college educated. He'd been a four-letter sportsman at the University of California at Los Angeles. He was had been in the military. He was well-spoken, you know. Um, and there was a lot of resentment against Robinson in the Negro Leagues because once Robinson goes, the Negro Leagues pretty much, they get, you know, they get pillaged by, by Major League Baseball. And and so something very important is lost, you know. I mean, it does mean that whole bunch. And that maybe he'd even take, gone out of turn. Right. That certainly Page. That's right. And Page the... never forgives him for that, you know. Page thinks, but Page couldn't have borne the burden of overrepresentation. That's the thing, right? You know, Ricky didn't just want the ball player. He wanted the ball player who could deal with the stuff by not responding. So there's a kind of volatile passivity that is called for. I want you to be competitive, Jackie, but I don't want you to behave like a Negro. In, in thinking about both these uh, chapters together, the Pinar and the Robinson chapter, one, again, another, I, there's all these, there's all these, um, there's all these great linkages between all of your, all of your um, chapters is that both are, are able, right? It, they can't have an event this overrepresentative figure can't can't be that figure, except that they are able to be that figure, right? <laughs> Not yeah, and and that's exactly it, right? It's Robinson and Pinar, and they're sort of historically perfectly situated, right? It's what history throws up, and and it's what they have to con. It's both what they have to confront, and the ways in which they're equipped to confront the stuff. Right there, you know, to use a sort of, um, you know, Kantian philosophy language, you know, like a the world historical figure. I mean, Hegelian, right? World historical figures. That's what they are. And they're not just historic in that they um, break the mold, but that they represent what this, they instantiate best what this moment in, in all its complexity, difficulty, contradictions. That's what they do. And I, I think what motivates me in, in the Robinson chapter is wanting to undo all the stuff about how people, how Robinson has come to be canonized. And I think that canonization is a pacification of Jackie Robinson. And what I tried to do was suggest that there's an event that reveals a kind of truth about Robinson that is lost because of canonization. The cost of canonization is the event and what the vulnerable representation tries to do is to bring the event back and then to show how that is in fact 
um, entirely consistent with Jackie Robinson and that the canonized pacifist Jackie Robinson. Well, we should give it another look. I want to turn to your uh, last chapter so that we have time to go through this. And this is a chapter where you write about seeing uh, <laughs> Derrida in South Africa at the World Cup. So I, I wonder if you can um, unpack that chapter a little bit uh, for us, because I, that chapter in particular for me was interesting um, as, a, as a French historian by training um, and certainly someone interested uh, in the in the post-colonial and colonial relationships between France and, and its colonies in North Africa. So I, I wonder if you can, you can talk to us a little <laughs> bit about that chapter. Well, let me start with a little bit of a story. Uh, you know, um, all, all three of the books in the trilogy um, have three figures, or at least they all have three chapters. Um, Antri New has two figures who are identifiable and a third one, which is a more more of a collectivity. But um, I started the burden of overrepresentation, as I said, imagining that the governing concept was going to be conciliation. And I wrote it as such, and then I've always, in fact, this has a very Sydney um, beginning, this chapter. I was... In Sydney, I think in 2009, um, my wife and our son was not yet a year then, and we were, um, yeah, in fact, I can tell you exactly the date. It was the 23rd of July, 2009, and it's my friend David Allison's birthday, and um, we had flown into Sydney and then gone up to to Griffith University. and come back down to Sydney, and my wife and I gave a couple of talks in, in, um, at Griffith. Then we came back down to Sydney, and um, you know, I was asked to give a lecture there, and I, you know, I gave a lecture on Derrida as an African philosopher, and this is something I had been thinking about for a while, and particularly because of two Derridian works. One is. Um, Spectres of Marx, which is dedicated to Chris Harney, somewhat, you know, uh, I would say expediently, but no matter. And the other one is Monolingualism, a text that I, I really love. And this is all about Derrida trying to figure out, I have only one language that is not my own. I have only one language that is not my own. What is going on here? And I, I also knew that you know, from reading the biography, that Derrida was a, a keen footballer, not a very good one, but, but a keen one, you know, like Camus had been before him, another Pinot. Um And so that was actually driving me. So I give a talk in, um, I give the talk in Sydney, and it's, you know, fairly well received. And um, at that point, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, um, writing other things and um, in motion at rest is, more or less top of my priority. It's not as far the top as it should be, but there it is. Um, and so, you know, Derrida kind of haunts me as his proper from Spectres and Marks. And um, I write the, the chapter on Pinner. I write that first. I write the chapter on Robinson second. In the book, the order is reversed. But then I'm reading more and more Derrida. And 
I completely rewrite the book, you know. I mean, it goes from being uh, the project that I proposed to Temple University Press turns out to be almost nothing like the book that they eventually published. And that was a rather wonderful experience. But what it allowed me to do was um, to take up this issue of Derrida as an African philosopher, as a thinker of Africa. And I can do this in a kind of fantastical way, you know. I can do exactly what Derrida does, which is, you know, um, inspectors of Marx, you can sort of say, you know, a specter is haunting Europe. And my point of entry to this is that the philosopher born in Algiers is almost never recognized as an African philosopher, certainly not south of the Sahel. You know, he's recognized as a French philosopher. And so it's quite, you know, this is the this is the case that I'm trying to make, is that, you know, Derrida's own silence, the specter of Africa, the specter of Algiers, uh, you know, and Derrida says quite wonderfully in, um, in monolingualism, um, it's not the Nazis who disenfranchised me, it's Vichy France. They must have had it in their heads all along. And I imagine I must have had something in my head all along, and that is like Derrida must be located as a thinker of Africa. Derrida must be understood in that way. And I use the imperative tone there because without that, something is lost. And so I, you know, I read Derrida's love as much as one possibly can, and I'm trying to make the case for Derrida as an African philosopher, not an exclusively African philosopher, but a philosopher who is deeply rooted in the African experience and doesn't attend to that. So, you know, the opening is very weird. I mean, you know, like it says, I think I saw Jacques Derrida at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. And I give myself um, a fair amount of poetic license. So, you know, Derrida is... I wanted to write about Derrida as an African philosopher, but not in a, a conventional way. I wanted to I wanted to come at this through something where I could thread Derrida into questions about race and postcoloniality and um, you know, to echo his notion that it's not Vichy it's not Nazis who disenfranchise me. It's Vichy France. Again, the event begins with the unexpected party. Yeah, uh, um, I mean, as a Vichy historian by, by trade, in <laughs> fact, he's he's a hundred percent right as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, it's the decree of Cremieux, right, yeah. eighteen forty. And of course, and as, as we now know, the Vichy begins their anti-Jewish legislation um, before the Nazis are even prepared for it, and the Nazis have to kind of ask them to slow down, catch up. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're not ready uh, for you guys to, to do all the things we're going to ask you to do later. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. But I, 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 the, the final part of this chapter where you kind of integrate uh, your thinking about Derrida, the, 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 the kind of spectral nature uh, of ideas and concepts that can float behind us um, and, and, and infiltrate our world and influence us in, in interesting ways and the way you illustrate that through these Algerian footballers, these French yeah. Algerian footballers, I think is pretty evocative. So I was wondering if you could unpack 
um, how you came to that idea. And, and, and I think what's most interesting for me about this is then where you turn to the idea of the state itself being kind of spectral um, and, 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 and not always as rigid or, 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 or as, as, as concrete as a, a concept as we want to imagine it. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, surprisingly, that did not take a great deal of, um, you know, it didn't take a great deal of work because of somebody who has, you know, has intellectual roots in the post-colonial. Um, this was not um, that big of a leap for me. But what is interesting is that I can come at the precarity of the state through football yeah, from a and, completely different angle. Right. And the ways in which these, you know, these these French footballers are sort of taken up into the Algerian um, you know, experience and and then made Algerian and then they return to France. I mean that's the kind of um you know, it's 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 transactional, right? Um these guys put a booze and company or oh, no, they're not good enough to play for France, but they're all right for the Algerians. And what I find interesting is that the Algerians are not ticked off by this. You know, they think, okay, you know, this is kind of what happens when you have reverse migration. Um, and this is a kind of remittance from France to, um, to Algeria. And this is true for several places because if, we, you know, um, Toward the end of May, I hung out with um, Patrick. Um, no, I know what's his name. Um, oh my goodness! Um, two of the guys on the on the '98 French um, World Patrick Cup Vieta? team. Uh, no, no, no. It's Sham. It's um, uh, it's the guy from um, the guy who scores the two goals. The central defender. Um, I I can see his face now. And and uh, uh, Christian Carambo. Yeah. Christian Carambo is one, and the other one, oh my goodness, I, 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 I apologize, but I was hanging out with them at a conference, and, you know, we're talking, and Carambo, I mean, um, the, the, the other guy, he does all the sans papier work, um, you know, he's, um, he only scores two goals in his international career, and they're both against Croatia um, in the semifinal, but... Anyway, he's a central defender, and the name will come to me. But it's not Lillian Turam. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's Lillian Turam, okay. and you know, <laughs> Turam Carambo and I. Uh, you know, I, sh I apologize, Lillian. No, I'm um, a French historian so, I'm of sport. Yeah, yeah, I should have come to me right away. Yeah, but. No, um, <laughs> um, je suis this, are you? You know, uh, but anyway, and when we're talking, and you know. Turam's politics is very obvious. You know where he stands in relation to race and all this nasty stuff. And at the conference, Turam says, I became black at the age of nine. In other words, the moment that I arrived in um, in France from Guadeloupe, I think it is, you know, like that's the moment I become black. Until then, I'm just, I just am. But Carambo, who's a less likely figure in this regard, you know, we're talking and... He's from, um, I think he's from uh, French Caledonia. Yes, he's definitely. And he tells me about what's going on around the referendum, what had gone on around the referendum in 2015. He says the French packed the election, I mean, of the electorate with all these, um, you know, French new arrivals. 
so that New Caledonian independence could be thwarted. And here you have something very strange going on, right? I mean, they're quite happy to have Christian Carambo, articulate, smart, well, well educated, right? I mean, um, his parents are greatly disappointed when at 16 decides to become a professional footballer. You know, his father's a, a teacher and, you know, I think comes from a, a line of teachers. And so this, you know, this form of exchange and this economy of remittances, you know, it's, it's truly Shakespearean, right? Because... What happens is that you're haunted, right? Um, you know, a ghost, you know, something walks, something unearthly is going on. And, of course, Derrida writes specters of Marx in that spirit. But, and I'm interested in exploring that spirit, perhaps even extending those possibilities of haunting to understanding how the erstwhile colonies are now culling talent or surplus talent, I suppose, from um, the metropolis. Right. And it seems fair somehow because, um, as I say in the burden of overrepresentation, you know, the greatest African footballer is born in Marseille, right? It's. <laughs> It's Zizou. Zizou, yeah. It's it's Zizou, and he had never been to um, he'd never been to Algeria, and he's not, you know, he's not Algerian in a strict sense. He's a Berber, right? He's from the Barbary coast, and you know, people don't know this about um, Zidane, but you know, he has four kids: French wife, French Catholic wife. And they've all been baptized, and, you know, he's known to go to Mass with them, certainly when he was in Madrid. And so you have this guy who's represented as, you know, in 98, of course, he's a hero, right? In 2006, he's a villain. And I talk about this in, I talk about this in, in Motion at Breast, the coup de boule. Yeah. Um, so, I was living in France when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and there's that moment with the flak jacket and, you know, he's yeah. standing above. The music Is video, coup de boule, coup de boule. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, and so that actually, I, I, I would have to say that kind of economy of exchange and um, the logic of remittances and sort of claiming back, is that sort of presented itself to me as, as axiomatic. We don't have too much time left, Grant, but I'd love to hear about the, um, is this is this the top part of the bun or the bottom part of the bun, entre nous? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's, um, I think in many ways it's the bottom. And here's why, even though it comes last, this is the book that I think at least, let me explain. It has um, it has two figures, and each have a chapter. And the two figures are, you know, a man I now think of as the second greatest player in the history of the game, Leo Messi, and you know, um, um, 
I think the greatest player is Alfredo Di Stefano. So interestingly, I think two Argentines are the greatest players in the world. And then the last, the, the second chapter, is, you know, this is, of course, just to thwart any Brazilian ambition um, and you know, to yeah, offend. Gonna, you might get some emails about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, to offend um, Joga Bonito. I'm sorry, you know, if you want Pele, you're welcome to him. Um, I'm going with Di Stefano. Just watch the 1960 match against Eintracht Frankfurt, and, and then you'll see my point. Um, but and then the, the second chapter is on Luis Suarez, so it's a sort of Southern Cone um, uh, um, book. I, I deeply admire Messi, and it's also about the state because you know Messi is a, a man who is not loved in Argentina, respected but not loved. Right? He can never bring he can never bring the bacon home. And I talk about the ways in which he's, you know, torn between, um, you know, being a member of the nation state that is Argentina by birth and by <laughs> by um, depth of affiliation, I would say he's Catalan, right? Um, and then, you know, Suarez, again, the event of the biting and, and all that stuff, but so what I'm talking about is is the notion of being between, right? Between the world and me. What stands between the world and me? Is it is it the nation state? Is it my own conflicted affiliations? Well, with Suarez, is it is it love? You know, um, particularly the love that Oscar Washington Tavares, the coach of of, um, of the Uruguay national team, has for him. But in the middle, there's an interlude. And it's a tribute to a 1985 football team I played on in Cape Town. Um, and this was, you know, during the days of apartheid. And it was quite amazing team. I mean, we only had 12 players, which is odd now, right? We had one substitute and it was almost the same substitute every game. Um, it's like an impact player, right? Yeah. Um, and that's all we had. But um, I had long thought about ways to try and honor that team. And I finally found this way because I had these two chapters and I had a very, I have a very kind of, what I think it was a very kind of like irreverent Heideggerian opening. You know, I say Martin Heidegger knows nothing about Mitzsein and he knows nothing about Mitzsein being with because he never met Leo Messi. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a sort of tribute to Messi and I come at it through, through Hegel and, and, and Jacques, um, Jean-Luc Nancy. But, that interlude is in many ways both an attempt to just pay tribute to something like death because that team, that club no longer exists. These people have all gone their way. You know, it's 30 years, more than 30 years on. But it's the bottom of the bun. In other words, it's the base insofar as... Um, so much of my love for sport and my deep, you know, enthrallment and engagement and pathological relationship to it comes from that moment. Um, not necessarily from that moment, but it coalesces in that moment. And it's you know, that it's ghostly specter. Yes, and also I, I say this in the um, in the acknowledgments that you know it's the last book I will write about sport. And I think it may have something to do with, one, the desire to do other stuff, but two, 
the feeling that I've, um, you know, I've recognized um, where it comes from, and I'm able to nod in the correct direction. Well, I'll be looking forward to reading this book as well. I want to mention one more thing about your book, um, which is uh, as yes, as much fun as I had reading it for the philosophy. I, I think our listeners should know that it's also incredibly <laughs> funny. Uh, there's a there's a there's a wry sense of humor <laughs> throughout. There's one line in particular where you're talking about the Afrikaners trekking t- uh, towards autoimmunity that may, that just had me laughing. <laughs> There, yeah, yeah, there's a no. lot of humor in your work um, um, as well. So. Go ahead. I, I'm glad, yeah, that because you know um, Heidegger is probably you know the most important, together with Derrida, and formative thinker in my archive, and um, the the um, Ljubljana um, Lacanians say about Heidegger: nine hundred tones are not a single <laughs> joke. You know, no single joke. So, I am. Um, I. 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 am tr- not sure. I try, but I do. Um, I do kind of want to have a little fun with um, this, and you know, I, I poking fun at people doesn't seem like entirely a bad idea. Beginning with Heidegger. Good. Yeah. I. Uh, I encourage everyone to go out and read it. Uh, for those of you who who um, are listening, we've been talking to Grant Farad. He is a um, professor. He teaches at Cornell University, and we've been talking here about his book, The Burden of Overrepresentation, Race, Sport, and Philosophy, out now from Temple University Press. Pick it up. You'll enjoy it, I promise. Uh, Thank you very much, Grant, for joining us. Um, Thank you very much for having me, Mr. Rathbone, Um, you know, and um, happy holidays to everybody. Yes, thank Happy holidays to you as well. You've been listening to New Books in Sports, a new books podcast. Uh, My name is Keith Rathbone, coming to you from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.